Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. Y'all, I am so excited to share this interview with you. I've been waiting on it for a few weeks and I literally can't hold it in anymore. Um, I'm so excited to talk to one of my favorite internet friends right now, Margot Feldman. Um, Margot really introduced me um, to all of the poor girl trauma, as she calls it, and financial trauma that was stuck in my body. Um based on a very chaotic childhood um, and has caused me to, to, to pay attention to with compassion um, the ways that I have internalized messages about my worth and um, my ability to earn a living, um, what money means, etc. So I can't wait to talk about all of this with Margot and for you to get to hear some of her brilliance live. Um, I would love to have a conversation about this with all of you, either on Instagram or on Twitter. I know we're all stuck in our fucking home, so let's chat um, and let's get into it. My name is Margot Feldman. I use she, her pronouns, but they, them is also cool with me. Um, I guess I'll describe myself using some of the words that are on my website and in my bios. Uh, So I'm a writer, an educator, and a community builder. Those are sort of the three words to describe the work that I do in the world. I'm also a uh, queer, chronically ill trauma BB. Um, and <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I love astrology. So, and I think for me, it, it tells a lot about who I am. So I'm a cancer sun, Sagittarius rising and Aries moon. So I joke that like my summary for that is hashtag zero chill. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no chill about anything. Uh, so yeah, maybe we'll start there as an intro. I love it. People with zero chill are truly my soulmates. Yeah. So excited to meet you and know you. Great. Um, well, I was, I, I can't remember when I first discovered your work, but I know that was very recently. I think Mm -hmm. it was December, um, when I became aware of it, probably through a repost from somebody else that I follow whose work is really valuable. Um, and I was so excited to see, um, you talking specifically about, and for everyone listening, um, Margo has recently released, um, well, you have you have quite a few zines that mm-hmm. are both available digitally and in print. Um, and the one that I have is the poor girl trauma, which I was just like, oh, my God, somebody's writing about this. Mm-hmm. Like it it speaks so much to experiences that I personally have had. And I know that um, probably the majority of our listeners on Millenniagram being um, largely queer, largely you know, working or lower class. Um, and we just, we don't have spaces to talk about that much. Yeah. It seems like something that is often um, sort of veiled in shame, um, something that we'd like to forget about um, until, you know, the moment comes for that GoFundMe because of our medical emergency or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um so I was really excited to find your work. I'd love to hear kind of the story behind where it started for you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. So I've been writing and publishing things in the world since about 2016, I want to say. Okay. Um, well, and actually even before that, because I had a blog um, that I ran from 2015 to 2017 called Floral Manifesto. And it was all about the intersections of fashion, feminism, and feelings, um, which are some of my favorite um, fun. topics. Yeah, it was, Cute. It I was, love it. It was a really, really great project. Um, and so I did a lot of like very personal writing through that. Um, and I've always been 
very openly talking about the fact that I have lived through many different forms of trauma. Um, I've been very open about talking about my struggles with anxiety, which really until about two years ago, I just thought was its own separate thing. And now I understand as a symptom of complex trauma. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, big time. I mean, basically everything is just complex trauma. Uh, <laughs> What we're learning uh, as truly as knowledge of trauma develops. Um, so I was always writing about those things. But then I had this moment uh, where I was talking to a friend of mine. And as like a bit of like backstory for me. Um, so I lost my mom when I was 11. And it was my dad, my brother and I growing up. And with her death, we it felt slowly, but then very quickly descended into poverty um, mm. in, in large part because a single father now, but also because my dad got a very rare form of ALS, um, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, within about mm. two years of her death. And wow. so this disease, normally, if you get it, it's like you don't live longer than four years, like maybe seven but my dad's version was something that he actually lived with for 20 years uh, before wow. he died. So, so here I am as this like young girl who's lost her mother and now I'm raising my younger brother and I'm fulfilling this kind of like role of mother. I'm like the one who's cooking all the food, doing all the cleaning. Um, and then my dad starts to get sick. And so then on top of that, I became not just a caregiver to my brother, but also to my dad. Um, wow. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty brutal. Uh, and we never talked about it. We didn't talk about mm. becoming poor. We didn't talk about my dad becoming disabled. We didn't talk about my mom's death. There was, there's never any conversations about these things. Um, wow. yeah. 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 And like, you know, again, as I come to understand more about trauma, I just see how, you know, when we go through trauma, what helps us like not develop the symptoms of complex trauma is to have space to process what's happening. And mm. gr growing up for me, there was no space to process yep. anything. Um, so I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who I'd been friends with for seven, eight years by this point. And I was telling her about some of the things I had to do uh, to help my dad. So by this point, he was now in a long-term care facility, which is where he lived for the last two years of his life. But, you know, he still needed someone to do his laundry. He still right. wanted someone to, like, pick up food from the grocery store because he didn't always want to eat what they were giving him. And as I was telling her this, she was just like, wow, I had no idea that you did so much for your dad. And it was this moment of, like, awakening for me where I realized, wow, I actually don't really talk about my family. And... <laughs> wow. If I'm not talking about my family, that means I'm not talking about poverty. Um, mm. And so I ended up writing an essay uh, for Guts magazine, which is like an amazing Canadian feminist magazine that sadly just released their last issue. Um, but I wrote a piece for them called Slow Death, and it was about kind of reckoning with my, my dad's disability and... At that point, the beginning signs of my own chronic illness and their relationship to poverty and how we can't talk about being disabled without talking about being poor, given that the, you know, vast majority of people who are like on disability um, are also poor. <laughs> and, yeah. and we also need to talk about the ways in which capitalism uh, makes us sick. Like these two forces uh, are just deeply interconnected. And so it was at that point that I started to kind of name that I had grown up in this very like poor family, that I started to talk about, you know, my dad having holes in his shoes through winter because he couldn't afford to get another pair, where I started to talk about 
the experience of going home one day from school when I was 17 and finding the eviction notice on our front door. Mm. Um, And so I started to write about that, but I still wasn't really writing about it. Uh, Because I think, you know, our nervous systems are really amazing at helping us recognize when we're not fully ready to process certain things. Um, And so I think I had a lot more processing to do around my caregiver trauma, around the like fraught dynamics between my dad and my brother and I and the emotional abuse I went through. I sort of needed to talk about all of that before I could really address the poor trauma. Mm. So it's been more in the last really couple of months that I've really felt ready to start writing about this, naming it, talking about it. And so what you were sort of seeing when you started following me on Instagram was really, for me, also the very beginning of writing and talking about this. Wow. It's amazing, the synchronicity there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's so interesting. I was thinking about, as you were talking, just how this sort of, um, when there isn't a space to discuss our trauma, especially within our intimate circles, like that extra level of erasure, mm. how that exacerbates the trauma in a way, because you're you're suffering silently and also there's this gaslighting that happens where you're like, maybe I am making this up, maybe I am overreacting, maybe... If, if I'm not talking about it, then maybe it isn't real, you know? Well, absolutely. And I think also what I came to realize, I was recently uh, doing some reprocessing with my trauma therapist. Um, and we had, you know, sort of picked this memory of me working in a clothing store at like age 18, 19. And you know, watching, like I would be behind the cash register bringing up hundreds and hundreds of dollars of back to school clothing shopping that parents were doing Uh, with their teenagers mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. with this like smile on my face. And, but actually like feeling so angry um, and, you know, anger as I've come to learn more about it is really our attempt to like address something that feels unjust that's like mm. what what triggers our trauma or our anger response rather. And so, but if you don't have the space to name that, um, you know, both because obviously the, you know, dynamics of my family, but also at that time, you know, I was just starting university. I hadn't really even like learnt about like capitalism or feminism or like any, <laughs> like I didn't have the vocabulary, right? Yeah, like yeah. look at what was happening and say, oh, this is like fucked up. Like this is, um, this is not okay that some people, you know, have to live in poverty and do this service work. Um, and, and we're not seen for that because our poor shame um, makes makes it so we don't talk about it. And also as both like a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways, unless you're like homeless on the street, poverty isn't always legible. Mm. And, and I think, again, I say it's like a blessing and a curse because class passing can be so vital to our survival, but it also means that we're not seen. Um, Right. And that people aren't thinking about that, for me, deeply integral part of my identity unless I bring it up. Um, so you just, you're just silent about it. Right, right. What, um, as you, so as your knowledge of your own personal nervous system has evolved, um, what did you start to notice um, as you... Um, trying to think of a better word than confront, but just Mm. engage, Mm -hmm. engaged with, um, your poor trauma. Um, what did you start to notice, um, experientially in your body about that? Yeah. 
I'm just so obsessed with, with somatic therapy and like this, the ways <laughs> in which we're, we're coming to like reconnect with our bodies. Um, it's and, so cool. Oh, and so wild. It yeah. is. It is. It's so wild. So yeah. So some of the things that I started to notice were, um, you know, so I, my partner, uh, his family is upper middle, like I would say, you know, yeah, middle upper class. Um, and they love to go out for like fancy meals and, <laughs> and normally his parents will pay and that's like a very nice thing. Um, but you know, before I had really become like an integrated unit in the family, I always, whenever there was talk of like, oh, they we're going to go for dinner for so-and-so's birthday, I would just feel this like surge of panic rise mm. in me because mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, okay, are we going to go for this meal? Should I be like going thinking that I'm going to pay? And then like, how do I navigate ordering something that's like not as, uh, you know, like big or decadent as everyone else? And you know, I was immediately just starting to go into panic mode, um, yeah. you know, and I would feel, you know, the pressure on my chest, which is where like my flight response lives. Um, I would feel my hands starting to shake. And so, so that would just be like just one, one example or more recently, I had to go into an H&R block to try to get some help with my taxes. Um, oh, God. Was uh, so scary. It was like a nightmare. <laughs> it was a nightmare. I posted about it a lot on Instagram, like, as it was happening, because I think, like, in a little bit more time, I will find it, like, really comical. But, like, it was... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, essentially, I had realized that I had made some sort of error when submitting my payroll documents. I'm a graduate student, so I work as a TA and you have to submit the same paperwork every year, even though nothing in your life changes. And so I was submitting it. And then I realized as I was going to file my taxes that I was like having to owe like $1,300. And I was like, what? <sighs> that's not, that's not real. So I was like, all right, I'm a student. I'll go into H&R Block. I'll talk to someone there. They'll help me figure it out. And the amount of overwhelm that was coursing through my body mm. in entering that retail space and sitting there and waiting to talk to a tax accountant it was like almost unbearable. Like that's part of why I was sort of like live tweeting it via Instagram because I was like, <laughs> I just need, uh, I need an outlet for this. Yeah. But in the past, like, you know, it, like part of that overwhelm is, is that I've never been good with numbers. I never did well in math class. And I mean, as far as I can remember from high school onwards and so, and so now as I'm sitting in this H&R block, like almost having a panic attack as I like wait to talk to this tax accountant, trying to think how, how the hell am I going to like pay this money that I do not have and, and what's going to happen here? Um, I start to think like, you know, as someone who grew up poor, it's like, I wonder if maybe my nervous system gets a bit overwhelmed when I'm looking at numbers because <laughs> they don't ever represent anything good for me. Numbers are debt. Numbers are how, you know, how many deals can we find at the different grocery stores? Uh, right. Numbers are, you know, counting down the dollars you have in your account, living your paycheck week by week. Um and so as I was sitting there, I was starting to just realize like, wow, like my, I think my body has been feeling this trauma for so much longer than I knew. And now it's like, I'm just having this like vocabulary to understand why anything like creating like a budget spreadsheet for the month makes me want to cry. And, you know, beyond, like, there's like, you know, it's not just like a, like, I'm sad, I'm poor feeling, but like a very no. like, bodily visceral feeling of like, don't do it. Don't do it. This is bad. Like, this I is... may survive. I may not survive. 
if I confront these numbers kind of thing. Yeah. 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 You know, and I'm always feeling panicked when it comes to thinking about like, if I don't, you know, if I've gone out and I've done some like spending immediately, the first thing in my brain when I get home is like, oh my God, I probably have $0 in my bank account. And then I'll go log onto my bank account. I'll be like, okay, no, you have, you have more than $0. It is like, (laughs) it's not significantly more than $0, but again, it's that, you know, Trauma makes us think in extremes. Um, Mm. And, you know, the way I know that I'm like not in my adult brain is like when, yeah, I'm just like, it is the most extreme possible scenario ever. Um, Because when I'm in that space, like, I'm just like, oh, I'm just gonna like, tomorrow I'm gonna be evicted from my apartment. And all of these things are gonna happen and there's nothing I can do to control it. And, you know, my my brain just doesn't understand that I have so many more supports in place now than I did in the past. So even if an eviction notice came up on my door, it would be a very different experience. Yeah. And I think what's so scary about anxiety like that is be is that you have very real proof experiential proof to point to Mm -hmm. of like um this this is something that I do actually have to be afraid of because I've lived this in the past you know yeah um and our our nervous systems don't realize that there could be new outcomes based on resources that we've that we've been able to gather since then yeah absolutely Um, it's a very, it's a very, I would say a young fear. Like it's a child's, it's a child fear because it's one that we experience at a, at that early developmental age. Of course. When, and when we didn't have the, we didn't have the same resources or, you know, either like inner resources or outer resources. Um, you know, I did not, after my mom died, like my mom's side of the family basically disappeared. And my dad had a very estranged relationship with his family. And, you know, I had my friends, but I was like friends with like largely like working class, like punks. And like, you know, none of us had a lot of money. So right. when the bottom fell out, like it really, like there was nowhere to turn. Um, and in this like really kind of like funny moment, you know, I joke about getting evicted as an adult, but it did happen. Like I did get run evicted, um, a couple of apartments ago and it was this like horrible feeling. Cause I immediately went back to that like trauma place, um, yeah. where I was like, you know, because after we were evicted, we had to like move three towns over where we could afford mm. some like low income housing. And so I was like moved away from my friends and like really isolated. Um, and so the story that was coming up for me in that moment was I'm going to lose my friends. Like I'm never going to see them again. And oh. I'm going to have to like move like far away. And So, you know, and as much as that experience sucked, it did give me a chance to experience it differently because I had just such a beautiful community that I had cultivated in my life that were just there to help me go and look at apartments and to lend me money for first and last month's rent if I needed it. And, you know, it just, so, I mean, that's like a pretty beautiful, um, experience because it now when I feel those moments of scarcity or fear come up I have a different experience that I can anchor myself to wow that's beautiful yeah and it's and it's really like I feel like I know that I've put a ton of work into building community in part because I did not have it at all growing up but it is still like it's a gift like I am so constantly epically grateful for like both like my IRL community as I call it and my URL community because I have like cute I like that I've like received support from folks who follow me on Instagram in all sorts of ways um during times where like I haven't had the money I've needed to do something uh so you know 
And I know that a lot of other people who like follow me on Instagram when I post about community are often humans who don't really have that and they want it so desperately um, because, you know, I, I just I don't believe that our healing from trauma is something that's only our work. Like mm. our inner work, it has to happen with and through community or whatever kinds of intimate relationships you have in your life. And if you don't have those, it's going to have a real impact on your ability to heal. I think it's so, I, I, I love that you say that because it seems like um, in kind of like the the self-help or (laughs) wellness culture that um, a lot of us are exposed to, there's still this very um, capitalistic, individualist mentality of like, almost like pull yourself up by your own emotional bootstraps kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. put yourself through therapy, do all, and all of those are important things. Like building your inner resources are crucial, but we don't exist in a vacuum and we don't, um, exist only for ourselves also. So, um, how, how have you sort of built that kind of, um, community that does resource you in ways that, um, that heal you today? It's such a great question. And it's one that I've been thinking about a lot because of those people who have reached out and, and sort of asked, how do you do this? And because I'm an educator and because I really like communities, like the thing I love so much, I've been like working on putting together some sort of like workbook that sort of synthesizes, I think, some of the pieces that feel important to me in in building community. Um, I think one of those things is finding people that share the same values that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every human that's in my life is someone who is committed to anti-oppression, is involved in some form of activism in some way, shape, or form, um, who is committed to their self-growth, uh, and who really also value community. So when you have those people in your life, I think in some ways, some of this work just happens kind of organically because it's just like, it's within the fiber of our being. Um mm. But I also think that so much of what I've learned or seen or, you know, have experienced comes in large part from many humans in my life being committed to transformative justice, which is all about interdependence and community Um, and, you know, accountability is is a communal process and... So many of the humans in my life are also chronically ill, disabled, mad, trauma survivors. And, you know, when you read the writing of like disability justice, um, folks like Mia Mingus or Leo Lakshmi Piepsina Samarasina or Kai Cheng Tom, like all of those people are talking about the ways in which we can create these webs of care and mm. and really show up for one another uh based on like what what it's what's possible for us to give um you know again interdependence is just so key there so so i mean uh so i guess that those would be some answers i think also i love um going to events where I think I might find like-minded humans. So, you know, one example is I started going to this storytelling evening called Unresolved Feelings uh, by this... Ah. Yeah, so good. Um, I need to go. (laughs) So they're so, so good. Um, And put on by this this, um, Toronto indie publisher called Without Pretend... Uh, who, you know, is very committed to sharing the stories of women and non-binary folks all centered around feelings. And, you know, through going to one of those events, I connected with the organizer 
And, you know, two years later, her and I were collaborating on a storytelling event that I did in Toronto called Unruly Bodies. And so in doing that, you know, we were inviting people to come to those events who were, you know, mad, disabled, chronically ill, occupying bodies that, you know, were told are bad bodies. And... Mm. And, you know, I know that from, like, folks who have come to those events that that allowed them to build community, even if it was only just in the two hours that they were there sitting in a room filled with other humans, Um, you know, and I know some of them went on to, you know, make connections with some of the speakers and, like, friendships blooming from there. So, So I think, like, that's, you know, one of my always sort of go to tangible suggestions to folks is like find some events, like whether it's a workshop or a storytelling event or a book launch that seems to be centered around some issues that you care about and, you know, get a friend to come with you because we need that wing person and, you know, and, and just go and just be in community. You don't necessarily have to even talk to anyone there But I think for me, the power of those kinds of gatherings is that you see like, oh my goodness, I'm not like alone in Mm. my experience. Look at all of these other mad, disabled, you know, sick bodies. Like, wow, okay, like now I can go home, lie in my bed for a week because I'm going to have a chronic pain flare after pushing myself to go to this (laughs) event. Uh, And and I can do that, but I can, you know, do that knowing like, okay, wow, like I'm not alone in this experience. I love that. And I love the word interdependence. I think... Um, I'd love to hear, so I know, I'm, I'm sure that you have experience with this, but I've, I've realized in my own trauma healing process that a lot of, um, a lot of the relationships that I have built with the best of intentions, um, in my, uh, you know, somewhere along my healing process, um, I often am unable to decipher between interdependence and codependency mm. <laughs> um, and what it means to uh, to be in relationship without that enmeshment. Um, and so I've, I, I have found some difficulty there of being like, okay, what if the people that I'm creating community with are these real relationships or are they trauma bonds? And um, not judging myself, uh, for that or anybody else involved, but um, what would you say are the key differences between those two things? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, part of what helps me distinguish between the two is really um, what feelings are coming up for me when I am not in relation with like my friends or my loved one. Am I feeling, mm. am I feeling panic? Am I feeling like if I don't call them right now, uh, I'm going to like, they're going to disappear on me forever. Am mm. I feeling angry when they don't text me that day? Like, what are the feelings that are coming up in my body? Um, and if those feelings are something that I can associate with a trauma response, then that can be a really good cue to know that maybe I'm veering into the zone of codependence Mm. rather than interdependence. Because with interdependence, I'm not afraid of losing these people. Um, Mm. You know, and as much as my trauma brain can tell me that I'll be alone forever and soon everyone's going to find out I'm a horrible person secretly. (laughs) And, you know, those stories are there. It's like, I still that I can push through that and then connect with that person and, you know, say to them, Hey, my trauma brain was just spinning in this story that you're going to like abandon me and leave me forever. Uh, because secretly I'm a horrible person and I just need to hear you tell me that that's not true. And in, Mm. in an interdependent relationship, that person would respond with like, 
oh my goodness, I, you know, I'm so honored that you felt like you could share that with me, or maybe they'll like laugh with you because they, they understand that the story is, is a trauma story. Whereas, you know, in a codependent relationship, um, the response that you would get from that often looks like, what, am I not doing enough to show you that I love you? Like, oh, right. um, yeah. You know, the sense of like being attacked or that the request that you're making is a judgment on the other person as mm. opposed to just being your need that you have as your human self with your traumas. So, you know, it's sort of like, you know, that with like the codependent narrative, we quickly start to feel like we, you know, are to blame. And then the person who's maybe like raised that like concern or that need then goes into savior mode. And it's like, <laughs> right, right. you know, it's like, oh, no, no, don't worry. Like, actually, no, it's like, fine. Like, it's just me. Like, that was too much of me to ask you for this. Like, you know, and, and you stop, you stop doing it. I mean, the vast majority of all of my relationships up until really starting therapy in my early 20s were deeply codependent. Um, yeah. And, and really worked on that cycle. And there was no accountability in those relationships. So I would say interdependence, you have accountability. Um, mm. You have people who are willing to show up and do the work that needs to be done for both of you to be living your most supportive, best lives. Um, and when you fuck up, you are able to own that and to not project your own stories onto the person that you've hurt. Um, mm. so, so those would be some of the, the differences for me anyways. Are you a fan of nudes? Yes, this is a trick question. Um, I never thought that I would be saying this, but queer Twitter is literally the only place to be. Like, if you're not there, like, what are you doing? Um, and when I was fundraising to try and keep this podcast alive, um, everybody contributed their nudes and what we call lewds and hofos um, to get this show back on the motherfucking road, you feel? So um, if you would like to get in on the fun, um, I'm kind of changing up what the Patreon looks like, but um, I definitely know that you're going to have access to content before everyone else. And number two, um, lots of sexy pictures. They're not up there yet, but we're going to be working on that in the months to come because I couldn't just do that shit the one time. Um, and then honestly, you're going to have like unedited interviews. So you're going to hear the shit that we had to cut um, because it was maybe fascinating and fucking classic and brilliant, but, um, you know, people have short attention spans except for you because you, um, have a bigger brain. That's not science. Um, but please join us on Patreon. Um, if you just search patreon.com slash milleniagram, um, join our posse, $1, $5, like whatever you can do, um, it really keeps our show on the road. The majority of our patrons are one in $5 donors. And I fucking love that shit because it means that um, capitalism is sucking us all dry. And yet we are doing, you know, giving our widows fucking might to keep alive the things that we love. And I'm grateful to contribute to one of the things that you love. Let's continue writing the story together. Patreon.com slash milleniagram. Go find it, hun. I think um, I was I was looking through your posts and I saw one that you said a while back um, and, I, and I think the quote is control is a brilliant survival strategy and I don't need it anymore. <laughs> and I think um, that that need for control is something that shows up so much in codependency, um, the need to control one another, to control uh, my reactions to control my emotions, to control their emotions, to control their reactions. And it seems like interdependence is, um, 
kind of the the release of that need for control, but also not not shaming how it has gotten you this far. I mean, absolutely. I think that that's like a perfect way to describe it. Um, you know, in I think one of the hard things, like some of the work that that I do, is around boundaries and around conflict. Um, I, I do a mm. lot of like teaching and community education work on, on both of those. And cause they're both like deeply connected, but I think so much, like, I think honestly, one of the biggest challenges that people coming into that work have is that they're so worried about how the other person is going to respond to them setting a boundary or to them bringing up like, you know, something that they did that hurt and that's caused this conflict. Um, And, you know, so we talk about how really at the end of the day, there is nothing you can do to control how that other person responds. And it's so infuriating (laughs) Uh, That's horrifying. I hate it. Yeah, I I joke that I'm like recovering control freak um, because, yeah, I hate it. I hate not having control or not knowing um, how someone's going to respond and having to let that be their work, knowing that Mm. not only is there nothing I can do to control how they respond, there's nothing really I can do to fix it. Um, and I say that not to, you know, I'm always careful about being like, you know, this isn't like permission to be an asshole where it's like, oh, well, you know, can't control how they're going to respond. So I'll just, you know, it's like, no, we have to like show up with care and compassion and, you know, a commitment to dialogue when we're going to have these kinds of conversations. But if your truth causes another person to shut down that is not your fault. That does not mean that what you had to say is wrong or too much or a problem. Uh, You know, it might be a problem for that other person and they need to decide what that means for them. And you need to decide what that means for you if it is a problem for them. Um, But yeah, we just, uh, like control is such a beautiful survival mechanism because when we've experienced trauma like that's like you know the loss of control right something happened to us that threatened our sense of safety and that feels like a loss of control and so you know the way to combat that is to always try to be in control and in certain ways um our society like really affirms that, uh, you know, like, and it's different amongst like different genders, but, you know, I think about the like man who's the boss and then like the bossy woman where it's like, you know, that's like, Oh, if it's like a certain person, like being controlling, it's good. And if it's a certain person being controlling, it's bad. Um, but I think like, when I'm in a space where I'm trying to control things, I'm not actually in the present moment, uh, which again is another great signal that it's my trauma brain operating because in the present moment, I can sit with all the things as they are and just be like, you know what? I can't control it. I don't know what's going to happen. Does that, does that terrify me? Yeah, it fucking terrifies me. But, you know, trying to come up with five different possible strategies and backup plans after backup plan isn't going to change anything. Right, right. And it's interesting when you think about it, control is so future focused. Mm -hmm. Like you, it, it, it absolutely is taking you out of the present because you're trying to, you're trying to decide now what's going to happen then and that's not ever something that <laughs> one can succeed no. at. Um, but it makes sense that we try. It makes sense that we of try. Of course. Um, and I think we need to, you know, this comes back to your point that you were making about interdependence where, you know, these, these needs that we have, these trauma responses can come up and we can all acknowledge their presence without shame, without judgment, without blame. And just be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's 
my response there to you is definitely my trauma response. And that person can be like, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that that was what was going on there. I see and, that. And you yeah. Can be like, ah, okay, cool. Let's like, you know, uh, let's like press play again on the tape and try to do this again. Uh, because, you know, like we're all going to mess up. It's like inevitable that we're just like human beings are messy. We're messy, fallible creatures. And when we're in a relationship of interdependence, those moments of messing up aren't a threat to the relationship. They, mm. they actually have the possibility to be deeply generative, to be healing. Um, and so, I mean, that feels like another important difference. Can you show up warts and all, for lack of better phrase, like, you know, with all of your trauma, all of your, you know, sickness, all of your stories, and can you be loved? And if the answer is yes, then to me, like, those are the kinds of relationships that I want to and need to foster. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, You talk a lot about... um, you talk a lot about softness, and I would love to touch on that, um, especially as you're talking about um, how we relate to one another. Um, I think it's, I think it's really uh, relevant here. Um, but you talk about um, on Instagram like the politics of softness, um, and I would love. I would love for you to say more about that um, because it's beautiful and I my I absolutely connect with it, but I would love to hear what that means to you. Sure, yeah. It's funny because yesterday I was having a conversation with um, a friend of mine who were collaborating on a zine series on softness is what we're calling it. And she, and yes, she was, yeah. I love it. She, she was asking me that very same question. So I kind of got a practice round at it and uh, I can. Oh, fun. Um, but yeah, for me, softness is an orientation towards ourselves and the world that we live in. Um, softness is, a, you know, I guess like obviously in opposition to the kind of gritty, neoliberal, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, just build your personal resilience kind of narrative um, that allow that makes us feel like we can't show up as our full selves. And mm. with softness, we see our flaws and we hold them. And, you know, we... We don't judge ourselves. We don't spiral into shame and blame and judgment. Um, with softness, we oh, as we choose that we you know want want a gentler world. You know, I think about how, for example, you know, I'm again, I'm in academia, and so the story around so much of what's happening in students really wanting to address mental health as like a crisis within within the university is you have these professors who are like, well, in my day, you know, there was no hand-holding and you just, you know, like, you just took the criticism and, you know. And I just think to myself, I mean, one, the day that you were, you know, living your best life in university is not the day that we're all living in currently. Uh, (laughs) Right. But also too, wouldn't you have liked it if someone was just like more caring, you know, like this idea that because things have been tough historically and because we've sucked at holding space for people's emotional and psychic lives, you know, reducing them to just like a brain in a jar that comes up with ideas, you know, just because that's how things have been, 
doesn't mean that that's how things need to continue to be. And so this is why for me, like softness is not just an aesthetic, although I love the aesthetic of softness with all of the pink and (laughs) fluffy, soft things. Um, But it's a political orientation that says like, we can't go on loving and caring for and being in relation with one another the way that we have been. We just can't. Wow. Yeah. Like, the world yeah. is literally on fire. Um, you know, it's not <laughs> even a joke anymore. Like, we... No, it's really not. Know, like, things are, like, things are messed up and we need to be making changes. And so, to me, that softness is really, you know to give like a spoiler away from my interview or sort of like conversation with Andy, but I sort of talked about how if the, if the apocalypse is coming, if like the world is going down in flames, then like the position of softness would be, you know, not to be jumping in your car and trying to drive across that bridge. Like what always happens in the apocalypse movies of like everyone, every man for themselves, but we would just like all get into a giant consensual cuddle pile and just like <laughs> really hold each other and be tender with one another um, and just be like, all right, like, let's just find these little moments of pleasure where we can uh, in and amongst all of this devastation. Because if we don't, like, we're not going to survive. Yeah. I, I, I want you to know that literally everything in my body responds with like joy and excitement Mm -hmm. hearing you talk about that. Um, because I really think, um, if there's anything that I have, um, witnessed in myself as I've kind of been on my, um, trauma healing journey, it's that, um, the more, the more whole and the more in self and the more centered I feel, the softer I feel. Um, and it just, um, I feel myself opening up to, uh, myself. I feel myself opening up to others and, um, just this, I don't know, this, this gooey space of connection and engagement is becoming accessible to me in a way that it hasn't been before. Um, and that feels absolutely life-giving. So it's, it's, it's it's magic. (laughs) It's like, it really is truly, truly magical to see, um, you know, and like so much of my thinking about softness is about like the body as well is about me learning to take deep breaths is about not always being in a state of hypervigilance where I'm like, you know, kind of like a little like lemur, like standing erect, looking for, you know, the first signs of danger, (laughs) you know? Right, right. It's about like, you know, literally letting my body soften into the pillow. Um, And it's about, you know, like not having this like closed fist, but this open palm where it's, you know, I'm really just allowing myself the opportunity to expand um mm. because that's like like softness is like, like kind of like gooey and like you know it's it's not uh you know it's it can kind of just like spread and go in so many directions and you know for those of us who have who have grown up with like such intense hypervigilance to soften is like mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I genuinely have had no experience with it. (laughs) Um, so it feels brand new and it feels, um, it feels, it feels healing to those child parts inside of me who, um, have stiff shoulders and rigid muscles and, um, you know, all, all of the, all of those signs of hypervigilance that existed in my body from the time I was very small. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) Um, I want to ask you one more thing. Um, 
because I know, so you talk, you talk a lot about, um, about what it means to interact with one another and, you know, in conflict and relationally, um, I noticed a post that you posted the other day about the difference between talking about healthy and unhealthy behavior versus supportive and unsupportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really loved that distinction. And it's not one that I've heard before. Um, I'd love if you could um, express why you feel that distinction is important. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I, I, every once in a while, I make those posts on my stories after I have just been kind of scrolling through the search function of Instagram, which because of the accounts I follow is a beautiful space, largely of, you know, therapy accounts and astrology memes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we follow all the same people is what you're saying. Uh, We we figured out the the mix of how to curate that world. But um, yeah, every once in a while, you know, I'm doing that. And I just see again and again, some posts, even from like some of the accounts that I so deeply like love and think are amazing. Yes. Yes. Healthy relationships are this. Unhealthy relationships are that. And so I'm someone who lives with chronic illness. Um, That's new-ish to me. I mean, looking back, I've been sick my whole life, uh, which I think is often the case with people who who then later uh, end up having, you know, a more diagnosable chronic condition. So, so, you know, like I and my research, um, my dissertation is all about sickness and trauma. And so I spent just like a lot of time reading people talk about disability and sickness and health. And, um, and so I think like when I see this positioning of healthy versus unhealthy, I mean, whenever we're working in binaries, it's really hard to escape the good versus bad, uh, right, right versus wrong, Um, you know, there's not a lot of nuance there. And I mean, I do it too, supportive and unsupportive, you know, but, um, when we're saying like, okay, here's what's healthy, what we're saying is this is what's good. Therefore healthy is good. And when we're saying here's what's unhealthy, we're saying, you know, this is bad. Therefore unhealthy equals bad. And as someone who is technically an unhealthy person, based on the fact that I live with chronic illness, um, you know, I, I see that and I feel really shamed and I feel like there's something wrong with me and, you know, my own engagement both like personally and academically with sickness is to really try to unravel the ways in which sickness makes different kinds of intimacy and relationships possible that are really beautiful and life-sustaining and supportive. And so when I see that like this is unhealthy, I'm just like, wow, this is so black and white. This is so working within this good versus bad, moralistic kind of framework. And even if that's not what your intention is, it is the impact that it has on me and various other humans who have, you know, been resharing that post and talking about it, who are also obviously clearly resonating with that. So... Um, so yeah, I would love to see us replace, uh, unhealthy and healthy with like supportive and unsupportive in part because I'm just like a word nerd and I love the idea of like supportiveness, um, as a kind of like, you know, like a support is, is what holds something. Um, and so I think that there is a a way there, like we talk about in, in trauma with our survival strategies, that even like the quote unquote unhealthy ones were ones that we needed to survive. Uh, at one point in our life, they were actually supportive. Now they might, now they might be unsupportive. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
So I think that, you know, there in using that kind of language, we can also think about ourselves and our past habits. I mean, I've talked about it a bit and and it will come up more in writing, but I, you know, had really bad substance abuse problems as a teenager, was, you know, like doing drugs all the time as a way to dissociate and escape. And, you know, you could call that unhealthy uh, or you could call that what I needed to survive at that point. Um, And so I see the supportive, unsupportive also working within a sort of harm reduction model of talking about substance use. Um, And yeah, so that's just, I just would love to see people who are therapists or are, you know, working in these realms of like supporting physical, mental, emotional, like well-being to really start to shift that language so that those of us who are chronically ill, who are quote unquote unhealthy, uh, can like feel really held in those conversations too. I love that. And I think, um, as you're talking, I'm like, you know, all of us who have suffered trauma, um, have, this is something that I was just thinking about today is that all of us who have suffered trauma, have probably caused harm in some way because of um, how our bodies responded to that trauma, and we can either um, we can either look at that with without shame, um, or we can, as I did for many years, avoid and ignore and repress and refuse to see my own harm that I was causing others um, because I was too afraid of the shame that would accompany it. Um, and I think if we're, if we're trying to get away from a binary of good and bad, um, and as we're trying to heal ourselves and, and, and reckon with the ways that um, our own trauma is causing us to harm others in some way, um, I think that getting away from that binary and just being like, you know what? I understand why I reacted that way. I understand why I pushed that person away. I understand why I withheld information. I understand all all of these things that would be called probably unhealthy behaviors by, you know, um, therapists or, you know, mental health professionals in some way. But I, I get why I did it. And I would love to find ways to um, move towards connection and towards engagement without um, without punishing myself for what I was incapable of in the past. And so, like everything you just said, there is like so deeply resonant for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I had like a moment, like it was probably a year ago. And I was talking with one of my best friends who's a life coach and does, has been doing her own like deep, deep trauma work for a long time. And we were talking and I was like saying, you know, I feel like I've like forgiven my, you know, teenage self for all of these things that she did. And I can't remember exactly what I was saying, but essentially the what, everything that followed that was like very judgmental, like unkind, like statements that I was making. And, <laughs> and she looked at me and she was like, are you sure you've forgiven her? Because, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, I think so much of this comes back to, again, like why so much of my thinking um, really about everything in the world is so deeply informed by those involved in transformative justice because they're really like, hey, these binaries aren't working for us. Hey, we all fuck up. We all are capable of and will cause harm. No matter how much trauma work we may or may not be doing. Because, you know, there are going to be days where we didn't sleep well the night before and we say something that we didn't mean to a person we care about. Or, you know, there's just going to, we're always going to be capable of that. And whenever I do my conflict workshops, I always begin 
with this question where I ask everyone to just do some free writing on what a world without conflict would look like for them. And and you would expect, you would think like, oh, okay, I'm going to get these like science fiction-esque kind of like stories about this like amazing utopia where like conflict never happens. But that's not what happens. What happens is people are like, oh, well, you know, I don't really think that we can have a world without conflict. But what I think is like we could become better communicators and we could like transform how we think about accountability. And, you know, and so I think it's the same thing with like harm. Like I don't unless in the queer utopia, which I dream of all the time, unless <laughs> our queer utopia is a space where there's no more trauma that's happening, I don't believe that there is a possibility for a world without harm. And I think that that's okay. I think like what we need to work with is learning how to take accountability for the harm that we have caused others, that we have caused ourselves, that we will cause others, that we will cause ourselves. Um, You know, that's to me actually like where the healing magic happens uh, is, you know, doing harm and being able to talk through it with someone with love and compassion and care and then to move forward from that. And... We just don't have enough models for that. So it makes so much sense that so many of us are, struggle to do this work of taking accountability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Margot, for the time that you have spent with me. I am just, I'm absolutely overjoyed um, by hearing about you and your work. And I feel like it, it's literally just... Um, I'm, I'm excited to read everything <laughs> <laughs> that you've written. Um, and I want to encourage everyone else to as well. Um, where would you like people to find you, to engage with your work, um, push your yeah. shit? So, I mean, Instagram is my favorite place in the universe. Uh, I do like daily writing on there. So you can follow me. My handle is margo.feltman. Um, I know that Hannah will have my name spelt out on this podcast, so you will know, but it's M-A-R-G-E-A-U-X because we have to be fancy. Dot Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N. And my website is margofeldman.com. And I also have a growing Patreon that I call the Soft Magic Community, where I share more of my writing before it comes out into the world or writing that used to be in the world on my blog that isn't, um, along with like monthly collage kits, because that's one of my, my major grounding exercises and some different perks that are part of that. So you can find me on Patreon um, under the handle soft magic. Oh, I love it. Um, I love soft magic and I love your soft magic. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much for letting me share it. (laughs) Oof. Okay. That was a lot. Um, but I believe in us. Um, I want to continue this conversation because I feel like we gave you some cool tidbits and now we need to go out into the world. We need to work this shit out. We need to see how it all plays into our lives, into our numbers, into our interactions with the people around us. So hit me up on Twitter at Hannah Posh, H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H. And let's talk about what respect and control look like in both our parenting relationships, in our reparenting relationships with our younger selves, and how that plays out. Hit me up. Let's keep the conversation rolling, folks. I'm excited. We out.